Pop quiz for you today. How many of you remember the name Ted Koppel? Does that name ring a bell for you? If you're as old as I am, you probably do remember Ted. He's the trustworthy, reliable host of the late night news program, Nightline. This is back before the news was considered fake. As someone who often found myself kind of winding down from long days and late night hours, Nightline's a show that I always looked forward to. It's one of those news shows that's a little bit information and a little bit entertainment, if you know what I mean. The topics that the show dealt with were almost always a bit edgy, a little bit controversial. Ted, I think, always had a good way of presenting that made you feel like all sides of the topic were being heard from a legitimate and fair place. When he retired in 2005, I was kind of sad to see him go, but he didn't go far. Although he was not heard of for a little while, he made a return to the American public in the form of a writer and author. It's in 2016 that he published his first investigative book, and I have to tell you, it did not take long before the public latched on. His book, you might remember the title, was called Lights Out. I remember reading it from cover to cover in one night. I could not put it down because its contents scared me to death. So the topic that Ted tackled using the best of his investigative reporting skills had to do with our nation's aging and often overtaxed electrical grid, a grid, I might add, which finds itself in even a greater position of compromise today than it did in 2016. In this book, Koppel raises a critical question. How prepared is our country to withstand an attack upon that networked system of electrical power plants that keep our lights on? Now, before you write off the question as kooky or fringe, let me just tell you that Koppel does an excellent job in his book of detailing how attacks upon electrical grids are increasing worldwide and their effect is staggering. While a typical blackout in this country might last for hours or on the outside a couple of days, terrorists have discovered through the internet complex hacking schemes that allow them to shut down grids not for days, but for weeks and even months. Performed against a larger city like Los Angeles, Houston, New York, Chicago, this could amount to tens of millions of people without access to computers, bank accounts, retirement accounts, social security, the World Wide Web, phone services, portable water, medical treatments, and life-saving necessities. Said simply within a matter of only a few days, a downed grid could result in absolute panic and chaos across our country. Koppel then challenges those governing our states to take action towards girding up and fixing, patching, protecting our nation's grid before it's too late. He writes, it is no longer a matter of if such an attack will happen. It is a matter of when. In his book, Koppel is simply asking a question. America, how is your grid? Not a bad question to ask. And I have to say that the same thing is probably true spiritually. Today on God's Size Living, we find ourselves at the end of not only the 12th chapter, but the biblical book that we call Daniel. 
looking back, we've been on quite a journey. Daniel, if I can utilize this analogy, is a book that begins with an attack against Israel's grid. If one's grid is that network of beliefs and practices upon which lives are built, then Israel's was not ready to withstand or resist an attack. Remember why? Israel had moved so far away from its covenantal rootedness, its calling, that Babylon was easily able, under God's providence, to attack and subdue Jerusalem. Its grid was weak. For Daniel, that meant that as a young boy, he was separated from his family, removed from Jerusalem, and placed into the service of Babylon's king, Nebuchadnezzar, as a slave. Every time I read the book of Daniel, I can't help but think about what it must have felt like to lose everything that you have, everything you dream about in an instant. There is no doubt in my mind but that Daniel found himself confused, broken, bewildered, oftentimes asking the question, God, where are you? No doubt, but that God seemed distant to this young man until the dream. In what I believe to be one of the great dream sequences in all of Scripture, Daniel discovers that God is not distant. Remember the first dream in Daniel's narrative? Let's go back a ways. King Nebuchadnezzar has had a nightmarish dream in which he sees a great statue that is ultimately tumbled to destruction by a great stone. The dream so disturbs the king that he tells no one its contents. Rather, he calls his sages and political advisors together and commands them to tell them what he has dreamed. Just think about that. What if your boss at work called you into his office and told you that he had had a nightmare? You smile at him and say, mm, so what? But what if he insisted that you tell him what his nightmare was? And if you could not, told you that he would fire you. Only what Nebuchadnezzar told his advisors was, if you cannot tell me my dream, I will kill you, which he abruptly proceeded to do. When Daniel was brought into the room to tell the king what he had dreamed, blood was fresh on the ground. No doubt, every muscle in Daniel's body shook within him. But it was at this moment that Daniel discovered that he was not alone. It's in this moment of uncertainty that God shows up. Daniel is not only to tell the king what he has dreamed, but he provides a divine interpretation of the dream, one that he will begin to live out within his own lifetime of serving a foreign nation as a slave. The king's dream, it seems, has been about the rise and fall of great empires, those empires of antiquity. Babylon, God informs the king through Daniel, will rise to great power, which it did, but its power would not endure, like Israel. Babylon allowed its grid to weaken, only to fall to Persia. Persia, God informs, King Nebuchadnezzar will rise to great power also, but its grid too became weak, allowing the Greek Empire to overtake it. In turn, the dynasty begun under Alexander the Great, the Grecian Empire too would fall to Rome. And all of this, Daniel learns, is under the providence of a God who alone is king over an empire that will stretch into eternity, a kingdom without end. It is, of course, at the end of Daniel's life that he's able to see this kingdom most clearly. At the ripe old age of 70, as Israel prepares to make its way back to Jerusalem, the prophet readies himself to go home, to fly into the arms of the God who has sustained him 
through horrors too difficult to imagine. Yet he would not depart without one last word to his fellow countrymen, Israel. As you return to our home, to Jerusalem, as you rebuild homes and fields and the temple itself, pay attention to the grid. Put into place those rhythms of life that keep and sustain us. Rise up early and daily declare God to be your God and you to be his people. Take in his word for the day in the morning and afternoon and before bedtime, kneel down in prayer, celebrate the great festivals of faith. Israel, build a grid that cannot be easily destroyed. It was with these words that Daniel leaves this world and is these words that he leaves with us that have deep meaning for you and I today. I want to read for us the last words in the book of Daniel. I want to read them together and then come back around their meaning for the tenuous times in which we live today. In particular, I want to think about what these words mean in relationship to the grid. Here are the words. Lord, give us your direction. Quote, And for that time, the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up. There shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. End quote. End of the book of Daniel. So, so what do those words actually mean? Let me remind you that when you, when you read the book of Daniel, you have to keep in mind the fact that his language throughout the book is apocalyptic in genre. That is, it's highly symbolic in nature. Just like God used symbols to communicate his actions in history through Nebuchadnezzar's dream, so does he use numerical symbols to communicate specific truths. Certainly, that's what we find happening here at the end of Daniel's prophecy. The first number that's used symbolically is the number 1,290 days. Now, I'll just tell you, you can do spiritual handstands trying to put together multiples of 3, 4, 10, 12, even 40 to explain the meaning of 1,290 days. I don't think you'll succeed. You could even seek to relate this number to the 42-month period, 1,260 days, utilized symbolically in the book of Revelation. However, I don't think these numbers are intended to relate to the numbers that we find in John's prophecy, the Revelation. So, how are they to be understood? Well, I, I believe the meaning of this first number, 1290 days, is actually spoken to, if you listen to it, in the text itself. Daniel tells us that this number, symbolically, represents the period of time that would endure between that time in which Antiochus Epiphanes would interrupt Israel's grid, namely its practice of daily sacrifice, and abominate its altar, up until the time that Jesus will return at the resurrection. So the year that matters here is the year 167 BC. We know that this is when Antiochus attacked Israel's grid, namely its system of beliefs and practices, by outlawing and making illegal the practice of daily worship and sacrifice. So the first number, 1290, represents something significant. What Daniel is saying is that from 167 B.C. forward, there will constantly, under the guidance of Satan himself, be efforts made to disrupt the worship practices of those who belong to the Lord. 
and I believe as we look at history, we can literally document this fact. From Lenin and Stalin to Mao Zedong to events that are unfolding before us, even as we tape this podcast, think Israel under attack. Our grid is under attack. Then there's a second number used by Daniel. The number is 1,335 days. Again, you could do spiritual handstands trying to understand this number through multiples. Please don't. Multiples are not the point. What is the point of the relationship of the number 1,335 to the first number 1,290? Well, just ask yourself the question, which is larger? Well, pretty obvious. 1,335 is larger than 1,290, and that is the point. If 1,290 represents that period in history, beginning with Antiochus Epiphanes' violation of Israel's altar, up to the return of Jesus at the resurrection, then the larger number, 1,335, represents the time frame that begins with Daniel's reception of this book in 536 BC, up to the time that Jesus will come again in the resurrection. Now, don't miss the point being made here. Daniel is simply saying to the reader, including you and me, no matter who is reading this book, know this. We have an enemy that wants to strike our grid, who wants to cut us off from the spiritual beliefs and practices that will prepare us for the last day, the resurrection. So what does Daniel say? Let's head again to the words from our scripture. He says, quote, Blessed is he who waits and arrives. For you shall rest and stand at your allotted place at the end of days. So let me ask you this. As you, as you hear these words, what, what stands out to you? For me, it's simply this word. Blessed is he who waits and arrives. How do we make it through times when our grid is under attack? We wait on the Lord. That is, we place our trust in him. We come under the hearing of his word. We practice prayer and the reading of scripture. We lean on his strength and not our own. We keep our grid strong, knowing that the simple practices of our faith are what will result in our ability to stand at the end of days at our allotted place, that is, on new earth and eternity. And oh, how we need these words today as a church. Do you know why? Because, simply put, our grid is under attack. This past week, I was reminded of just how significant the attack on our grid is through remarks made by a Cornell professor named Russell Rickford. As you may know, at the time of this podcast, Israel is deeply engaged in a battle towards rooting out the Hamas party in Gaza, rightfully so. Hamas's stated purpose for existing is that of abolishing Israel. It's not simply a political party. Hamas is a militant Islamic organization that is girded upon a radicalized interpretation of the Quran. As God gives the sword of war to governments, it is right that Israel, whom Hamas attacked, should seek to defend itself from further and further violence, even as prayer is made for the souls of its enemy. Now back to the professor. Following the unprovoked and premeditated attack on Israel, October 7th, in which 200 people were taken hostage and another 1,400 killed. A professor, speaking to a group of students at Cornell, said that he was, quote, exhilarated, end quote, by the actions taken by Hamas. Now, to be fair, 
this professor has now backtracked his words, but the damage has been done. Just think about this. An American professor, a well-respected Ivy League university, and the words exhilarating used to describe an act of terrorism against a close ally to the United States. And this professor is not alone. Students at Harvard signed a solidarity pact with Palestine. The student leader of New York College's elite bar association placed the blame for Hamas's attacks not on Hamas, but on Israel. In my book, that's tantamount to saying Israel is getting what it deserves. The University of Indiana, Chicago, and North Carolina have all seen student protests against Israel. You can't watch what's happening and ask the question, how is this possible? Have our state schools, without lumping all of them together, become so infiltrated with hatred, hatred against America itself, along with its allies, that a professor can call an attack in which people were killed, kidnapped, and babies' heads cut off exhilarating? It seems that at a cultural and political level, the grid, the system of beliefs that makes America, America, is without question under attack, as is the grid that underlay the church. I have to say that what we're seeing happen at the political and cultural level of our universities reflects what we can see happening at the spiritual level within Christianity. This became plainly evident during the month-long emphasis and celebration of all things LGBTQT+. When Target went overboard in its celebration of Pride Month, many wondered about the economic wisdom held by its leaders. When Budweiser promoted the LGBTQT plus movement, a move which, by the way, cost the company an estimated $400 million, many people shook their heads. But when the church, the church, stands up and in the face of the clear word of God, which in Romans 1 calls homosexuality an abomination against God, when the church celebrates, actually celebrates as good, something the Bible calls sin, one cannot help but ask the question, what has happened to the church? I would submit to you today that the answer to that question has a great deal to do with the church's grid. In the church, what forms our grid is a clear word of God, interpreted as it should be, as God's literal word to his creation. What forms our grid are the teachings that are derived from the word, teachings that give guidance to our lives. And let me tell you that when the grid, the grid of the word is attacked by liberal theologians and misguided interpretations, then the church's grid becomes in danger of collapse. Or as Ted Koppel so appropriately named his book, Lights Out. This is what I love, truly love about the word used by Daniel, the word with which he concludes his book. Quote, Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1335 days, but go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. And so we wait. We wait upon the strength of the Lord, for it is in his strength alone that we will stand on the last day upon this earth. Until then, protect the grid. Well, that's all for this week. I will look forward to seeing you next week. Again, just appreciate you being a part of this podcast. I always like to tell you, because it's true, I pray for you and your families every single day and just am encouraged by your prayers for me. So until next week, have a God-sized